Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. This week, we're going to be talking with Anthony McCann, author of Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. Yeah. Do you remember this happening, Kate? I do. And you know what? I don't think we mentioned this in the interview, but I remember reading the beginning of this book on the LARB website. Oh. Because that's where it was first published. Right. Okay, wait, I guess we should say what this book is about. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Go for it. So this book is about the standoff that happened in Oregon in 2016 between the federal government and a group of militia that took over the land and declared it for themselves. And this land was actually a nature preserve as well as a, a land that belonged to a Native American tribe. And so at a certain point, everybody kind of descends to this one spot. And there is a standoff between all of the different forces that are claiming this piece of land in Oregon and doesn't end happily. Right. Surprise. (laughs) Right. And yeah, I didn't follow this story much of the time. I don't think I was even reading the news probably much in the beginning of 2016. That was all pre-Trump. Oh, yeah. Who cares? I I was in a fantasy land. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going on. But the story has such a resonance kind of with everything that's going on in politics right now, all these different kind of conversations, all these different desires and emotions. And Anthony's book is just, it's really in-depth and it just has a lot to say and a lot of history that just gives such a deeper context to um, our current moment. So I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it gives a really good idea of how social media plays a role within the political conversations that we have today. The various ways in which very different seeming political ideologies somehow end up overlapping with each other, how the right somehow ends up being far left and how the left somehow ends up being on the right and the various ways in which Americans take on their politics. It's mm-hmm. it's a really interesting subject. It's all about feelings. It's all about feelings. People um, love to feel. They don't like to think. No, including myself. So let's, yeah. just, let's just feel our way into this next interview. All right, let's do it. We have Anthony McCann in the studio with us today. Anthony is the author of the poetry collections Thing Music, I Heart Your Fate, and Moon Garden. And he's an instructor of creative writing at Cal Arts and UC Riverside. His most recent book is called Shadowlands, and it investigates the 2016 seizure of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Thank you so much, Anthony, for coming and being with us. Thank you for having me. Since these events now feel like 100 years ago in the (laughs) current political timeline, just recap for us what this book follows and what happened that you wrote about. Yeah, I'll try to give you the short version of that because there's a very long long version. Yeah, there's many different versions of different lengths. But the basic events were at the beginning of 2016 on January 2nd, 2016, so right at the beginning of that eventful year, a group of folks who were armed— led by a man named Ammon Bundy, took over, as part of a protest, a national wildlife refuge, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in southeastern Oregon, at the edge of the Great Basin Desert, in Harney County, Oregon is the area. Harney County is a huge county. 
It's the size of Massachusetts, but it has only about 7,000 people in it. So it's way out there. It boasts the point the furthest from an interstate in the continental United States, not including Alaska, something folks are proud of up there. But it was way out there. And Bundy, who was not from there, had been operating in the county for a couple months because he had become very involved emotionally and politically in a case involving a couple of ranchers there who were being returned to prison under mandatory sentencing guidelines. The Hammond family, those people, Dwight and Stephen Hammond, a father and son, who had been having a decades-long battle with federal land management agencies whose policies they didn't agree with, including setting some fires that they were charged and convicted of arson for. That legal thing is a whole other complicated thing we can talk about if we get to later. And Ammon Bundy himself was also had grown up involved in similar battles from the 90s on when his father and his family ranch, which is in Clark County, Nevada, in the rural parts of Clark County, Nevada, where Las Vegas is, but in the more eastern Mojave Desert out there near Utah, corner of the desert, when his father had decided that rather than accept new environmental regulations, he would no longer recognize the federal government's right to own land. So what were the specific demands of the Bundys and then the kind of, I mean, I know it gets a little bit fuzzy, but why did they start the occupation? What were they asking for? Well, originally, Ammon had come to Harney County with the idea he could convince the local sheriff operating under an idea that's popular in right-wing circles that Ammon Bundy is part of, that the county sheriff is the highest law authority in the land, and also therefore the highest arbiter of what the Constitution says, and that therefore the sheriff could decide that this family, the Hammonds, did not have to go complete the rest of their mandatory sentence and could shelter them from the federal government. The sheriff did not agree, and so Ammon basically went the next step, and he helped to create, or he kind of created a local kind of shadow government that he got to invite him in. And then when the family stopped, or it was unclear how much the family ever supported, the Hammond family ever supported his efforts, the stakes changed. And when they took over the refuge, it was still in their rhetoric, in Ammon's rhetoric and the rhetoric of his friends. It was still about the Hammond family, but it gradually got much larger, much faster. It got about very quickly, it was about returning in their lingo. It would be like returning all the federal land of the county, which is a huge portion of the land in that county is federal, to the people whatever that would mean, or the rightful owners, sometimes they would say, which complicated things quickly when the local Paiute tribal group stepped forward and said, that's interesting that you're talking about rightful owners. But also very quickly, it wasn't just Kearney County. It was like, this is the first step in returning all of the federal land, public land of the West and of America to the people, because Ammon and his friends hold that it's unconstitutional for the federal government to own or manage land. Much of this book is about figuring out ownership, essentially, ownership over land. And you just mentioned that, of course, part of this equation are the native peoples who lived on that land to begin with. And so it also channels a really long history of claiming ownership over land and claiming it in, in the name of whoever is, you know, happens to be the more powerful figure at the time. Can you talk a little bit about the history that this book engages with, this long and obviously contemporary story about land ownership and claiming lands? Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's the first, the fact that Ammon was making this kind of claim, and it has a history in a lot of the rhetoric of Ammon. Is, he's a very devout Latter-day Saint, so a lot of it's very much phrased in terms of 19th century messianic Mormon thought and language. At the same time, a lot of the ideas that he's bringing forward are very 19th century ideas, settler ideas about liberty and the frontier. It's very much He's channeling like Jacksonian democracy, basically, to put it in the simplest terms possible, maybe. But at the same time, he was doing this, and he and his friends were doing this on this wildlife refuge, which had been part of the traditional territory of the Burns Paiute people, who, of course, have been displaced 
from that place by settlers with guns and ranchers with guns and eventually the cavalry with guns and had a long history of refusing that displacement after being deported, of coming back and persisting in that space until finally getting a small reservation of their own after their original much larger reservation had been erased. They finally got their reservation in the early 70s. So there was that whole history came into play very quickly. At the same time, all these guys out there with Ammon were going around with copies of the Constitution in their pockets and delivering their own versions of 1776 and speaking in a register that sounded sometimes like, as the county sheriff once told me, like these guys were looking for the shot her around the world, looking for some kind of way to become American revolutionaries themselves and restore the country to the right path, but in a very theological idiom, which again was very 19th century. Mm-hmm. And very messianic. And for me, what initially brought me up there was that messianic tone and the setting. When I went up there in the latter stage of the occupation, I had been very interested through my own personal research interests in Native American messianic practices across Mm -hmm. the continent, but specifically in the Great Basin Desert and in the Columbia Plateau, two different messianic religions. The most famous one being what gets called the Ghost Dance, which was whose shaman was a man named Wavoka, Mm -hmm. a northern Piute man from what is now Nevada, and an earlier sect called the Dreamer Sect, led by a prophet from the Columbia Plateau named Smohala. And they spoke in a very different register about land and about people's relationship to land, particularly Smohala, who was earlier than Wavoka, spoke about the proper relationship to land being one of like the impossibility of ownership. To be a member of the sect that he was the chief prophet of, one could not agree to succumb to the pressures slash offer that was being foisted on Native people by the U.S. government at that point to agree to kind of renounce tribal holding of land and take up individually owned pieces of property and take up farming. Smahala famously said, men who work cannot dream. And Mm -hmm. he regarded also property owning as being part of that. So I was very interested in this kind of thinking, some of which had actually played a part in the rebellion of the Paiute people of what is now Harney County, where all this took place, the Dreamer sect. There were some shaman practitioners of the Dreamer sect down there in the final rebellion of those people. Other famous practitioners of the Dreamer sect were the Nez Perce, the rebel Nez Perce were most associated with Chief Joseph and 1877. So I was really interested in all these things, and I thought I was writing a very different kind of lyrical reflection on the desert and desert history and desert time and messianic time. And then suddenly these very different people appeared on the Internet, uh-huh. staging in very messianic terms, white settler taking of this same land, and I felt compelled to go. Yeah. So they kind of invaded your story. They kind they, of they, they kind colonized your story a little they bit. They came right into it, yes. God, yeah. <laughs> Anthony, one of the things, at least one of the narratives that I think you're documenting in this book is that of what we might call a kind of radical fringe of the American right. And the things that you document, which you were saying before, their understanding, a kind of almost fantasy understanding of the Constitution as both document and destiny, the big government paranoia, and also with something that you touch on is its relationship to an increasingly diverse or multicultural America. So one thing that I was wondering is if you could tell our listeners a little bit what it was like to get your mind around what I imagine is a quite different worldview than your own, even if I do recognize that you share similar concerns about a militarized authoritarian state. I mean, I think there are many steps in that process. I was very alarmed, and I remain very alarmed by where they're coming from, especially in terms of what they're trying to advocate for. You know, I think one of the only common 
public inheritances that we have left, federal public land and the register they're doing it in, and also the way they're trying to revive with a certain sort of blithe naivete, cleansed of the violence, which is always still there in the story. Mm -hmm. The whole white settler thing was very troubling. But of course, they're more complicated than in person meeting a number of them and following them in trial. Of course, everyone is more complicated than the thing that they're projecting outward in their most public moments. And of course, they're also a very horizontal, heterogeneous group. So I found them actually surprisingly very easy to talk to. They're very eager to talk to anybody. They're very, the people around Ammon Bundy are very lit up with sort of messianic purpose. So they're proselytizers. They're very chatty. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, they're really, tradition. really chatty. They're yeah. really, I mean, their lawyers at the beginning of their trial were trying to keep keep their clients away from people who, like me, who they identified immediately as like reporters. And pretty quickly they gave up because there was no way to stop mm. them from the people who weren't in custody. Some people were in custody. Some people were out in pretrial release. So, and I found that the way that it became easier to talk to them was through the whole, the drama of the trial. Because once they were in okay. court, they were very intently focusing on aspects of the federal court system which troubled me as well. So that was a point of common concern that then we could move out to our considerable differences along as well. Do you get any sense, Anthony, about how they might view, say, like, not exactly similar, but other kind of protest movements about people's rights? You know, for example, like, how did they understand the indigenous rights movement or things like Black Lives Matter, where there would be these similar concerns mm -hmm. about government overreach and the militarized state. Did they understand that? Or was that like, well, that's a different thing than what we're trying to do? Again, they're a really heterogeneous group. So there were people there who definitely, there's one person I, I talked to a lot, a guy named Jason Patrick, who had definitely come to that movement from like the right-wing libertarian side of anti-police militarization. So he okay. had been very concerned with all the cases, you know, all the killings that had, you know, mobilized Black Lives Matter. And he made an effort during the trials to try to form an alliance with the local Black Lives Matter group in Portland, a group called Don't Shoot Portland. And he did not succeed, which was not surprising. He wasn't surprised either, but he made that effort anyway. And that's an important part of the book for me. It's later in the book, talking both with him and with Teresa Rayford, who's the leader of that group, who is now running right. for mayor in Portland. It led to very interesting conversations, especially with Teresa, about you know how what didn't work about talking with Jason. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right here, but she said something to the effect of, you know, I appreciate Jason's support for where I'm coming from and for, you know, what we're struggling for here in Portland. But the problem with Jason is he his views are who he thinks he is, mm. which I thought is a really succinct way of talking about, you know, your abstractions aren't enough, right? If you're not engaging yes. with the history behind your abstractions. And of course, somebody like Jason is talking in this total register of states' rights, which has this legacy connected to slavery and, exactly. and Jim Crow that he wasn't examining. And as far as the American Indian movement stuff in the 60s and 70s, the engagement with that history seemed pretty superficial, but mm. also like fetishized. They saw themselves as being like Wounded Knee mm -hmm. or like Alcatraz. Oh. That was definitely something people talked about a lot. And, you know, there is a strange connection into that libertarian world because Russell Means, the most famous leader of the Wounded Knee occupation, was a hardcore libertarian. He ran for vice president. I don't know if he actually ever ran for president. And weirdly, before his death, he did a long video, which is popular in those worlds, for Infowars, of all places, about how... Everyone off the reservation in America is now living on the reservation and that because we've given up on the Constitution, talking very much in their rhetoric. Something about the book that I think is so interesting is it, it does go into these 
this kind of Venn diagram of places where if people in these Venn diagrams really started talking and communicating and like pushing past some of the paranoia, there could actually be really interesting conversations, you know, where it, where the libertarian, the anti-government stance does kind of connect with aspects of the left. And like there could be a synergy if people would just get out of their little boxes more. And that's why the focus on social media in the book is interesting in that these were a few people. How many people exactly were in the occupation by the end? About? It's not. It's hard to say. I think it went between 30 to 50 okay. people came. I mean, I'm sure like hundreds of people were out there at some point. People came and went. But there was probably a core group of 40 or so. So it's a small movement in a completely isolated place that because of social media had an enormous reach. Well, they had thousands of followers and social media followers. Are, right. Yeah. And I think in the story does does a good job of showing how the movement was amplified by social media and the role that it played and kind of also tracing a history of other people, radio announcers. You write about someone in Sierra, like this racist in Sierra Madre California, who was able to like invite a lot of people into his worldview just by his sermons. William Gale, yeah. That's from the 70s and 80s, the Posse Comitatus. Very fascinating side story. But I guess, how do you think social media, what role do you think it played in this story? And like, there's this idea of the repetition of history here, but do you think this story is very unique in the way that social media played a part in it? And I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about some of the documents of it, these crazy videos <laughs> that you write about that sound just insane. The whole thing could not have happened without social media. The ability that Ammon showed to gather people to Harney County because of the celebrity that he had gotten in that world and the importance that he had gotten in that world was entirely dependent on social media and on the use of things like Facebook videos or Facebook Live videos and YouTube videos. He never would have been able to get a bunch of people to show up for a vague plan in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere without that. And also that community of feeling is definitely, I think of them as being, like all internet communities, a somewhat automated, very emotive, but also very alienated community of co-feeling that's assembled on the internet and then is periodically reassembled in these actions mm -hmm. that then create also a tremendous amount of bonding, usually a tremendous amount of mortal danger or the feeling perhaps of mortal danger, which obviously creates more intense bonding. The one thing that really struck me, and I think it's one of the hardest things to think about with the occupation and maybe one of the most important things to think about, is the way in which social media allowed Ammon and friends to challenge very effectively the sovereignty of both local and federal government in this very remote part of the West, which also, like so much of the country, but especially the rural West, suffers from tremendous disinvestment in the public sector and mm -hmm. economic malaise and social malaise and alienation. They're able to use our new, very privatized public sphere to assemble people out of nowhere and instantly, by the fact that they all came, that it was a place with only four or five sheriff deputies for the whole county, which is the size of Massachusetts, challenged that sovereignty and began to speak in a way immediately to the media that showed up from all over of a different kind of sovereignty and assert whatever their idea of popular sovereignty was. And there's something about the way this seems to me to have a, a not inadvertent relationship to the way that tech power operates that seems very important to me in this story and hard to unpack exactly what that relationship is because more of it is to come. Like recently when, when I saw in the news that Facebook had announced that with in partnership with some other corporate entities is starting its own currency, its own global currency and basically its own bank. I thought of this story, which I mean, that connection does not maybe seem immediately obvious, but that is a direct attempt to undermine national sovereignty globally to mm -hmm. get around it. They're very explicit about it. They want to go around Wall Street and Wall Street banks, but Wall Street banks are still 
not as much as most of us, I think, would like, but are still somewhat regulated by sovereign entities. And they're just going around that. And there's something about the image of these guys being able to swoop in, challenge sovereignty in a situation that I think of as a very neoliberal situation, where governance has been dismantled and broken down by years of neglect and active attack, and establish basically flash mob governance and chaos kind of instantly, says something about what's going on with governance and with ideas of sovereignty in our contemporary situation that I personally find bear thinking more about and I certainly something I want to continue to think about and was trying to think about in this book, but I'm still trying to understand. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Anthony McCann, author of Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're happy to have Lyra Kilston back in the studio with us. Lyra is a writer and editor and the author most recently of Sunseekers, The Cure of California. And she's here to recommend a book. What book are you going to recommend, Lyra? I'm going to recommend The Moore's Account by Lila Lalamy. Oh. I came out in 2014, and just want to say that I know you guys spoke to her recently, and this is a coincidence. <laughs> um, I read it in my book club earlier this year, and it was someone else's selection, but we all really liked it. And so just to explain, since it's audio, more as an M-O-O-R, like a North African person, it's a fictional history, but it's a story about these explorers from Spain that came to the New World, they landed in Florida in, I think it was like 1520s. And the Moor was one of their slaves. Mm -hmm. And they had this just horrible experience. I mean, there were hundreds of people on several boats. And, you know, if it wasn't disease or drowning or wild animals or something, you know, they many of them died. Like, it was just a disaster. But four of these men, including the Moor, made it all the way to Mexico. And one of the Spaniards wrote like a diary about it. And he had one line in it that said something like, I survived, this person survived, this person survived. And then an unnamed, he didn't name this guy, but he said, and a Morris slave. So that's all it took. And then the author just took that one tiny little like footnote of history and created this whole fictional account of, of this unbelievable journey from the slave's perspective. Right. And it was just fascinating. We really liked it. I think I'm just, I like American history and I'm old enough now to realize that the way that we were taught it, there's a lot like left to be desired. Mm -hmm. So even though it was fictional, it just reminds us that there are all of these other, these untold stories from different perspectives. And she just did that. It was a really fun read and very vivid and quite a page turner. And it, it really like brought this country to life in that era. And have you ever wanted to, instead of having to research some footnote that interests you when you can't find that much, have you ever, you know, as a as a more of a historian, had an urge to just make up a story where there was <laughs> where there was one that you couldn't find? Briefly, but I don't, you know, I think that's a whole different skill set, which also makes me even more admiring of what of what she was able to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you tell us the the book again? Yes, it's called The Moor's Account by Leila Lalami. Thanks so much, Lyra. We've been speaking with Lyra Kilston, author of Sunseekers, The Cure of California. 
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Anthony McCann, author of Shadowlands, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. Can you talk about, so Ammon Bundy, kind of the, the central figure in your story, he had something of a radical turnaround in the past several years, right? I mean, you had mentioned this in the in the last response, kind of coming out against both the militia movement and also specifically about Trump's kind of anti-immigration campaign and rhetoric in 2018. And I'm just wondering a little bit, like, can you talk about what you make of that change for him? Like what you think changed in him and how perhaps, if at all, that signals some kind of broader change in the country? It's interesting because with his statements, because what the, this, the statements you're talking about in November of last year, yeah. during, in the run-up to the election, when there was all the vicious rhetoric about the people coming north in caravans from, from Central America. He put out a statement. Um, he had been upset by the rhetoric in his own, the very Trumpite rhetoric in his own world, which is divided between very Trumpian kind of militia people and these libertarian people who are very anti-Trump. And he came out and said, you know, I've done my research, as, as and this is very much an Ammon's in Ammon's register to speak like this, say, you know, I did my research and I found out that these are just people coming from places where they're suffering and it's our duty as Christians to offer them uh, refuge. He even offered it, I think in that video, um, to put people up in his yard. But this wasn't surprising to me that he would think this. This didn't seem like a turn to me because he's a very devout Latter-day Saint and that's not a strange position. So it's consistent with his faith, and that's where this turn was coming from. That's where that particular one. What was yeah. interesting, though, is that he 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 said it, right? He didn't have to mm. go public with it, and he and it definitely alienated a huge portion of the people who had come to support him before, who had come to keep his family's cows from being rounded up, and that was a huge break. I mean, he's with that with that part of that movement, and it's a huge split in that movement now. I mean, he received threats from people. He received, you know, people were writing to him being like, I wish, you know, we'd never helped you. I wish you were dead, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was a big split. As far as like in terms of his, it's hard to read what kind of change and growth there's been in him. Otherwise, if he's still, he's still definitely, when he's been out in public, he's still on the same, like all the public land has got to go to the States. Um, you know, he appears at places with people like Devin Nunes and stuff like that. But at the same time, when he was, and this is a place that was of tremendous interest for me in writing the book. Um, it's toward the end of the book where I went and visited a bunch of the, the Bundyites outside a private prison in Nevada in Pahrump, now run by Core Civic, which is the uh, frightfully ironic, unironic name of what used to be called the Corrections Corporation of America, where Ammon was being held and because of his resistance to certain, to strip searches and things like this had been... Um, what he called tortured, I mean, which, which sounds like most of us like torture, but is basically a standard procedure in these private prisons. It's legal, apparently. They put him in a, a shower stall, handcuffed behind his back for 13 hours. And this went out to his community, and they formed like a community of support around this prison. And they were marching around it every day at 2 o'clock, having what they called the Jericho March, blowing a shofar. One of the, the guys there is really into the ministry of the shofar, as he puts it, um, and protesting about private prisons and getting rid of private prisons, which was a fast, it was fascinating to find these people like giving me information about, you know, corporate support and pension plan support for private prisons, talking, talking to me about stuff that you, that, you know, that like they, like they had just been reading like Michelle Alexander. It was very strange to, to get that from them. And Ammon then was releasing statements from, from prison that were very much like for him, they were very humble. Um, they were, he was saying, like, there were things that I did not know before that now I understand, you know, now that I'm seeing what it's like with being detained in I, here. And I think that's what I was talking about of these, like, these positions, if they could meet outside of their boxes, I mean, they, you know, they might have a lot 
in common, and that's what I get from the book. But there's a lot in the way, but there's a lot standing in the way, and a lot yeah. of that I think has to do with history and race, and you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So before I think, um, or we've already jumped forward a little bit, but can you tell our listeners how the occupation ended? It ended, of course. How? What happened? Well, it had kind of two two endings. This mm-hmm. is befitting this sprawling story. The first one was Ammon got arrested, um, and the rest of the leadership of the occupation were arrested, and one of their number was uh, was killed in an operation that you know, the FBI had been in Harney County pretty quickly, kind of watching and waiting for their opportunity. They had a lot of informants on on the refuge among mm. the occupiers, and they basically waited for a moment when they had the entire leadership off the refuge going to uh, a meeting in a county to the north of uh, Harney County where it seemed like they were going to have a lot of support, where they had a sheriff, for example, who was much friendlier to them. But when they were going through the Malheur National Forest in an area with no cell phone reception, they moved in and arrested everybody. One group of, in one car tried to get away, and um, in that one of them, a man named Lavoie Finnegan, was killed, who since become a martyr for the movement. Mm-hmm. And then within the next day, most of the people who were out on the, on the occupation out on the out on the refuge, you know, fled, or were um, some of them were arrested when they when the FBI checkpoint went into place. Except for four people who stayed for until February 11th, um, ringed in by the uh, FBI out in the sagebrush. And then there was a very another very very dramatic end where three of them surrendered. Um, at this point, they had gotten Frank Reverend Franklin Graham on the phone, and he had flown himself in in his own private jet because that's how Franklin Graham does to be there to make sure that the to, I don't know to grant grandness to the occasion. <laughs> um, but then the last person was kind of the most unlikely of all the occupiers, young man from Ohio named David Fry, whose main cause was the pollution of the ocean, the destruction of the oceans and nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Fukushima in particular was something he wanted to talk about. He didn't know anything about public land, but he had befriended Lavoie Finnegan, the man who had died on the internet. And at the end, he decided he didn't want to surrender and he was holding like, a gun to his head. He was on like a live phone broadcast for hours. Um, but finally, he surrendered after he, he got as his final concession. He got all the FBI agents to shout hallelujah as he walked into FBI lines. And that was the end of the occupation. Well, well <laughs> how, how do you follow that? <laughs> um, one of the things that I was wondering is when you, when somebody is, when you're working on a subject like this, you went up there, you talked to the people. How did you feel while you were working on the story? Did you ever feel tempted by the enthusiasm of these groups, by the showmanship that many of them exhibit, the charisma mm-hmm. that you've that you write about? Were, were you were you at all tempted to get caught in the exhilaration of a movement? It, it's hard to like in the in the in the court because it, it, I didn't. Most of them were gone by the time I got there. It mm-hmm. was just the FBI ringing in the final four, um, and then there were just sort of people affiliated with the movement, like militia types around town. But the actual pe- Bundyites with that actual particular weird spirit that they have, um, which maybe the wittiest of them, a guy from uh, up in Los Osos, a man named Neil Wampler, calls their uh, their spirit of rural electrification, which I think was a joke that went over the head of most of the people in his group because they had occupied a they had occupied a wildlife refuge and were staying in the headquarters buildings that were all built during the New Deal. Right, they're all Conservation Corps built buildings, um, and he talked about their their whole occupation as a rural electrification project, which is another administration of the New Deal. But his he was imagining it all as a, effective electrification that they were like a dynamo creating all this energy and exporting it or was coming in and out through the internet and 
through their interactions. Their intensity is very intense, right? And then feeling it in the space of court, which is obviously a space made to sort of like restrain bodies, restrain feelings and try to manage everything towards, you know, grind everything down towards resolution was fascinating, Mm -hmm. right? It was exhausting. I wouldn't say like that their cause like the exhilaration of yeah. their cause in terms of my feeling ever seemed appealing to me, but the energy that they brought and the energy they brought to court and then also the stubbornness mm-hmm. of them and the persistence of them in the face of that much power was um, stunning, right? And so they were fascinating to be around and especially once they started to be in situations where suddenly I would realize like, oh, they know something about that that is right. Right. In terms of how the federal court system operates and how certain institutions like the jury were originally understood or how the Supreme Court was originally understood, that was the, those are places where suddenly they would actually have something illuminating to say. And mm. the fact that they were doing it in their strange, rough, working class idiom in court was fascinating. It definitely made me want to do something I never thought I'd want to do, which is you know, go to be a, somebody who goes to trials, especially political trials. And mm. it's something I recommend to anybody. To anybody, not just somebody who's thinking of themselves as a journalist. If you have a chance to go just for yourself um, mm-hmm. and go to a serious political trial, um, it's fascinating to watch the smooth machinery of the justice system buckle under the pressure of people who aren't afraid to go to jail and of people who want to use that to for theater because it's, of course, you know, court is theater, right, as well as being a kind of religious ritual. I think that the people who are involved in this occupation, and it does seem not such a coincidence that this story came to be in 2016, and then shortly after, or at the end of that year, Trump was elected. I feel like the people who took place in the occupation are the people who are a part of the Trump electorate and people who everyone says, like, oh, this, the forgotten white man. How do we... People left behind. The people <laughs> left behind, yeah. And the book does a good job of showing skepticism towards these people and sympathy and not kind of sentimentalizing their position. But I guess just spending so much time in this community, the more paranoid sections of the internet, feeling some of the isolation of of these people and the quote-unquote toxic masculinity and desperation. (laughs) If you came away thinking like, oh, here's what these people need or "Here's here's how I could engage these people with the America that exists today, not this kind of fantastical one of of the past that they would like to return to? Well, I found that there's already such a – within that group, they're already arguing about Trump and we're arguing about Trump from the beginning. It was notable that in the the trial, in the lead up to the election, nobody ever talked to me about Trump except one very libertarian – uh, occupier who was not on trial, um, who, like many of them, had come into political life through Ron Paul. A lot of them had been politicized by the Ron Paul campaign. Um, and then that's sort of like the call of Ron Paul to like be the media, right? be the citizen reporter. Um, a lot of them conceived of themselves in that way. Um, and he was the first person who told me in a convincing way that Donald Trump was going to be elected. Um, he was telling me because he was horrified by it, but he was convinced that I, if in my world view, was just had my head in the sand and didn't understand that this was inevitable. And also, he was very emphatic about, like, you don't even understand how horrible this is going to be. So I remember being very alarmed until I decided, like, what does he know, right? That can't happen. And then around shortly after that, that's when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And I was like, okay, he's done, right? It's all over. So in that world, there's already a lot of debate about Trump and also a lot of debate about power, 
there's always a place to have a conversation about about abuses of power. And especially since they're all talking in a constitutional register, you can immediately, for example, when you're talking about stuff at the border, it's very easy to have a conversation about like this is fascist, right? And and that that some of them won't agree, right? Some of them are more supportive, right? Or are supportive of believe somehow that the federal government can do those things, right? Even though they don't want the federal government to do anything else, which doesn't really make any well, sense, but it's possible. <laughs> don't believe in the federal government. They don't yeah. want it. They choose to not believe that it exists. And then they'll be yeah. like, but it does have the power over immigration, right? Which, mm -hmm. I mean, you right. know. Um, but there's also people in that in that world who are calling on their fellow patriots to occupy ICE. Um, there's people in that world who believe there shouldn't be borders at all because that, I mean, if you go for a full-on total libertarian position, that becomes consistent with that. So there's so many uh, avenues of conversation. They don't necessarily go anywhere, mm -hmm. right? I mean, one of the avenues of conversation I found with, with people – that was interesting to have and always like hit a wall with eventually is like, how come they never talk about corporate power at all? Like never, right? It's all the federal government, right? Which obviously does have a role in a lot and, and governments have a lot of role in a lot of injustice, including corporate predation. And that's a really interesting conversation to have, but it's also like a, an impasse in a lot of that world because it is so, so libertarian. It just seems like there are a lot of places to have conversations around things like prisons, Surprisingly, there's a lot of places to have a lot of engagement about private prisons, for mm -hmm. example, is definitely a place that other conversations bloom from. And then surprisingly also, I think this will be shocking to most listeners, that world was intensely supportive of the whole like Standing Rock protests and saw no contradiction between what they had done and supporting that at all mm -hmm. and didn't understand why people thought that. And um, people who were supportive of the Mellier occupation who went out to Standing Rock and found themselves eventually kicked out of some of the camps um, because of their associating with the Bundys were deeply hurt by this and still, don't, still didn't seem to understand why that was that they were removed. At the same time, there's a lot of people in that, in that world who are totally gung-ho at the entire Trump thing mm -hmm. and by that he's somehow, despite being like obviously the most vile like sort of person that he is, right? Um, that somehow he's also like embodying the will of God and, mm -hmm. and that kind of craziness that we see all the time. So one last question, um, and we can finish on, on this. What do you think is the legacy of this stand, of this occupation? With Ammon um, and, the, and the movement kind of having split or there being splits in that movement, like in terms of directly what's coming from them, it's hard to say. But in terms of a more general legacy, um, I think there's a number of things to, to think about. I think the thing about that I was trying to, to articulate earlier about sovereignty and social media is something to watch because obviously they've shown that this can be done and conditions in rural communities have not changed and the tools remain, right? I think also um, the biggest concern maybe I would have, and I think um, we're going to begin to see more and more of this, is as climate change legislation mm -hmm. right, is put forward. There was just a major climate change bill in Oregon that was defeated. If that climate change legislation does not deal with like um, the economic problems of quote-unquote rural America, I think you get more of the possibility for very, very be very different because it would be the American version, but yellow vest type mm -hmm. scenarios, um, especially since people are more armed, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then with you know social media allowing more instantaneous, um, more horizontal organizing, I think that this could become sort of a, a model for actions in the future. What those would look like, 
it's hard to say like you know and at the same time i think also for me a lot of the value of engaging with this story has been how much it demonstrates how much of our difficult history is swirling about in our now activated and automated right in our privatized public spaces and is behind I mean, I think as is, is, is we, is we're largely understanding, right, is behind basically all the impasses that characterize our cultural and political life. I mean, it's just one big impasse after another, really. Yeah. Well, we have been speaking with Anthony McCann. He is the author of Shadowlands. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 